Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Boris Johnson announced the easing of all lockdown restrictions on July the 19th this week, despite concerns of some scientists that the pandemic is far from over. We must be honest with ourselves that if we can't reopen our society in the next few weeks, then we must ask ourselves, when will we be able to return to normal? Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be digging into the Prime Minister's pre-announcement of the ending of all of England's lockdown restrictions in two weeks and ask, is it all a bit too much too soon, with cases rising so quickly? Health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson will discuss. And later, with the mighty England football team heading to Wembley this weekend, we'll be debating the politics of football patriotism. Is Gareth Southgate, the team's manager, sending a signal about culture wars? And how does he fit into the narrative about Britain's post-Brexit view of itself? Our foreign affairs columnist Gideon Rachman will debate with our political columnist Robert Shrimsley. Before that, Clive and Sarah, welcome back. Hi, Saeb. Thanks, Seb. So one of the things that the Prime Minister announced this week is that he wants everybody back to work and that that order for sort of work from home as much as possible will end on July the 19th. It's rather curious time with everybody going off on summer holidays. But what are you two going to do? Am I going to be seeing you back in the office quite soon, Clive? Yes, I'm going in once or twice a week. I believe you went in this week for the first time and we didn't coincide, but I have been enjoying seeing a lot of colleagues for the first time for many months or more than a year in some cases. So I'm going probably to ramp that up to two or three times a week later in the summer and then I'll go on holiday. I think like a lot of people. And Sarah, it's a funny one because obviously we've all been in touch with each other a huge amount over the past year, mostly by telephone, WhatsApp, text and email. So it feels like you've had quite an intense working relationship with colleagues. But then when I was in Brackenhouse and I saw lots of colleagues in the newsroom I haven't seen in a long time, it felt very bizarre because in some ways nothing's really happened in anyone's life over the past year and yet so much has happened. Yes, it's very strange, isn't it? I was thinking about one or two colleagues who've actually joined the FT since the start of the pandemic. And I've been working with them quite closely for the last, you know, 14, 15 months, but I've never actually met them in person. So this sense of our lives having been rather frozen since March 2020, I think is quite powerful. I actually haven't set foot in our offices at Bracken House in the city since March the 16th last year. And I must admit, I don't have any immediate plans to start going in regularly. It just feels a bit sort of counter-cyclical to start going in when infections are hitting such high levels. I mean, I have, of course, been double jabbed, but still I do feel a slight nervousness, which I've got to try to get over in the next few weeks. I know that, but for now, I haven't yet ventured in. 
Well, that takes us very nicely onto the main topic of the week. July 19th has been trailed as England's Freedom Day, the moment when the success of the UK's vaccination programme meant that all remaining lockdown restrictions would ease and life would pretty much return back to normal. But for Boris Johnson, as is often the case with coronavirus, it hasn't turned out to be that simple. The decision to go ahead with easing the restrictions is finely balanced. The Prime Minister told a number 10 press conference this week that it should not be a big moment for celebration. Chris Whitty, England's chief medical officer, explained why, despite everything, the government had still opted to push ahead. And there is quite a strong view that, uh, that um, by many people, uh, including myself actually, that uh, going in the summer uh, has some advantages, all other things being equal, to opening up into the autumn when schools are going back uh, and we're he- when we're heading into the winter period uh, when uh, the NHS tends to be under greatest pressure for many other reasons. So Clive, let's just begin with an overview of where we're at in this pandemic. It's a pretty strange situation we've got in the UK at the moment because on the one hand, the vaccination programme is a great success. We've now double jabbed two thirds of all adults, or I should say that we will have by July the 19th. But then also we've seen a massive rise in cases and we've now passed over 30,000 a day this week. So the question obviously stands to a lot of people, why are we doing this unlocking now? Yes, the daily case total now is 15 times higher than it was at the end of April, beginning of May. And the health secretary, uh, Sajid Javid, said this week that the daily rate could rise to 100,000 cases this summer. Yet, as you say, the mortality rate, because of double jabbing, is far lower. The mortality rate was around 0.8% last year. Now it's about 0.1%. Even so, if we do get 100,000 cases a day, that is still likely to cause around 3,000 hospital admissions a day and, unfortunately, 100 deaths a day. And another factor which is alarming a lot of health and medical professionals is the long COVID. Fortunately, fewer people are dying, but we don't know how many of them are going to have long-term effects from brain fog, fatigue, muscle aches that could last months or, or even years. And Sarah, when you listen to what Chris Whitty was saying at the beginning there, the calculation they've made to take is now is as good a time as any to open up. Because if you wait even a couple of weeks or a month, as some people have been urging this week, then you're going to hit that period of the winter flu of schools returning. We've got this firebreak, as I believe Boris Johnson called it, of the summer holidays where they think they can open up and allow cases to spread, but not quite as quickly as they would have. But it's still seen as a bit of a risk? I think it is a huge risk and we're already starting to see the absolutely overwhelming pressures on the NHS, even with the number of cases that we currently have. I understand, of course, what the thinking is. I think everybody in the NHS is braced for a very, very bad winter. We're already starting to see in the Southern Hemisphere Uh, a big rise in cases of respiratory infections, those infections that didn't happen last year because of social distancing, the fact that we simply weren't around the world uh, mixing with one another. So I, I completely understand that nervousness. But 
I think, you know, what one clearly could have done was to have delayed perhaps by a month to just allow many more people not only to get double vaccinated, but to be in the period of immunity, because, of course, immunity takes at least two weeks to start kicking in. But yes, I think there's a general mood of of huge anxiety and foreboding in the health service. Uh, What we're going to see happening in the coming weeks, you know, we're already seeing surgeries beginning to be cancelled in some hospitals. If this is happening now, when infections are still, you know, at a sort of manageable level, then what's going to happen when they move to 100,000 a day, as the new health secretary, Sajid Javid, was predicting a few days ago? And I think that fear was encapsulated by Labour's response to this, which even though they are supporting the easing, except not about masks, we'll come on to in a moment, Kistama said that it was reckless. And let's be clear, let's be clear why the number of cases will surge so quickly, because he is taking all protections off in one go. That is reckless. And Clive, when we look at what they are easing here, so obviously the social distancing one metre plus rule is going, the requirement to wear masks in public spaces is going, the stay at home order, as we mentioned earlier, that is also going. So the only real things that are staying in place are you have to isolate at home if you're told by NHS track and trace, Uh, you have to wear a mask at UK borders, I think. And apart from that, we're pretty much back to where we were before the pandemic began. I think the issue that has caused most division is about mask wearing. And a lot of people have said, scientists, health professionals, that if we continue compulsory mask wearing on public transport within the UK, trains and buses, and in crowded indoor spaces, that is not going to have a big economic impact. It's not really going to have a big social impact but it is going to cut transmission. There's still some scientific controversy about quite how helpful mask wearing is in cutting infections. But most people, I think, would accept that it cuts transmission by around a quarter at least. And that is certainly worth having. I should also point out how much more polarized this debate has become compared with last year, not just within politics, though it is more polarised there, but within science as well. There are scientists who say, yes, the government's doing the right thing and who accept the timing issues and emphasise the need to live with COVID. Others are absolutely appalled by what's happening. And this is a very interesting thing, Sarah, because generally the scientific consensus when we've looked at lockdowns has been relatively clear that, you know, earlier in the year with the virus spreading due to the alpha variant, everyone felt we did need to lock down. The same was true earlier last year. But with this easing, it is very much split. You've got people who say Chris Whitty is right on the one hand that we do need to open up and we have to, you know, this is a good time as any. And as Clive said, you've then got others who say, well, actually, this is kind of madness. And the other thing we should mention was the politics of this, that we've got a new health secretary in Sajid Javid, who's taken a very different view of this to Matt Hancock from his first day at the Department of Health. He made it clear he wanted the restrictions to end as soon as possible. I suppose, you know, one could say that once consensus is lost about the importance of lockdown, then in effect, everything has gone because the reason the lockdown was so effective at the start of the pandemic was because there was a huge 
national mood that there was no alternative to this. But I think we as a nation are massively tired of having had to live our lives in this strange circumscribed way for the past 16 months. So I I can completely understand at a grassroots level why so many people just want to put this all behind them, particularly younger people who feel that they're at very limited risk, even if they do contract the disease. And as you say, Seb, the balance of power has obviously shifted crucially in government. It may be only one change of personnel, Matt Hancock for Sajid Javid, but actually that has crucially altered the balance of thinking inside the quad, the ministers who are most important in taking these decisions. So I think you have a health secretary who believes very strongly that for for all sorts of reasons, not least other health-related reasons, to, to be fair, that it is in the best interests of the country to open up. You know, we've seen a huge rising burden of mental ill health over the past year. So, you know, there is a very respectable argument to be made that health reasons demand a faster opening up. So we've now got a health secretary who thinks that way, meeting a population, a a significant proportion of which is thoroughly fed up with restrictions. And those two forces are coming together to end the consensus on which maintaining a full lockdown and even maintaining you know, as relatively small a a measure as mask wearing really does rely. I mean, I was struck, I went into a supermarket a few days ago. I don't often do that. I've become very much uh, somebody who uh, relies on deliveries over the last year or so. But I noticed quite a few people not wearing masks. Well, the last time I went in there, it was 100% masked. So already, I think people have taken the signal that they've now been given permission by the politicians to abandon masks and start, try to forget about these last 16 months and get back to normality, which is obviously a very appealing prospect for many. And I guess, Clive, what the government's trying to do is to get to herd immunity. Now, this is a a term that is widely misused and misunderstood, but correct me if I'm wrong here. Essentially, you know, we do have to get to some kind of herd immunity against coronavirus or we'll have some kind of lockdown restrictions forever. But as opposed to getting it by infecting the population and making lots of people ill and then obviously a subset very ill and another subset um, seriously ill, what they're hoping is that by letting the virus spread, it's going to hit that wall of immunity so most people won't get reinfected. But you are essentially saying that a lot of younger people are going to get infected. And how long is that going to take? And at which point are we sort of going to reach that status where there is herd immunity and it begins to, the the R rate begins to decline rapidly? As you say, herd immunity has become a politically very loaded phrase. And the government doesn't want to be seen to be pursuing herd immunity in the sense that has been used as letting the infections rip however many people get ill or even die. But herd immunity is a perfectly respectable scientific, immunological, epidemiological term. And also, we should remember, it's not an on-off thing. You don't suddenly flick a switch and there we are, herd immunity is achieved. We already have some herd immunity as more and more people are vaccinated and more and more people, unfortunately, have had the disease. I think we're most of the way there. What proportion of the population needs to be immune to have 
really good full herd immunity is debatable. Some people say 70%, others say it's 80%. And of course, one of the many unknowns in this equation is new variants, because the Delta variant is not only far more transmissible than its predecessors, it's also more able to escape prior immunity. So the dial on herd immunity varies as new variants appear. And we don't know if there are going to be worse variants. People are studying viral evolution. Some say that it can't really get much worse because then it will become biologically less fit. So yes, I think by this time next year, we will have something that any scientist would call herd immunity. But it's not a given. And finally, Sarah, the other danger or problem, I should say, with the strategy we're trying to do at the moment is the pinging of the apps. Because the cases, if they do reach 100,000 a day, as Sajid Javid said, that is going to mean a lot of people are being told to isolate. And this is through the NHS app, through NHS test and trace. And it could be a real summer of disruption because Sajid Javid announced this week that from August the 16th, if you're double jabbed and you get pinged, then you don't need to isolate. But that's still well over a month away. And just anecdotally, it feels like increasing numbers of people I know and colleagues are getting pinged very regularly and told to stay at home. You know, how is that going to be sustainable over the next month if you've got millions of people who can't go on holiday, who can't go about their lives because of this strategy we're pursuing? This is hugely disruptive for employers and not least our biggest employer here in the UK, the NHS. I mean, people on the front line are reporting that, you know, apart from all their other woes due to the enormous pressures on the system, they're having to cope with them with large amounts of staff off at home self-isolating because they have been contacted by the app. Now, this is obviously a problem that the government is increasingly alive to. And that we've heard a lot of talk this week about the prospect that the app might be adjusted, made, if you like, less sensitive. So it only registered when people had been in the presence of somebody with COVID for a longer period. Because I think one of the things that friends tell me is that often you don't quite know why you've been pinged. It's not clear what the contact was. So you're left speculating as to where this could have occurred and thus trying to measure your own level of risk. So I think, you know, as you rightly say, Seb, there's a long way to go between now and August the 16th when the the rules do relax a little, at least for the double jabbed. But this is something which I think is becoming a really urgent issue for, for government and one they are going to have to say something about very shortly. Clive and Sarah, thank you very much. The Euros 2020 have been a triumph for England, with the team reaching the finals of a major international tournament for the first time in decades. It has been a pretty uniting moment for most of the country, particularly after the rancour of recent years. But the England team's decision to take the knee, a symbol of the Black Lives Matter movement, has been praised by many fans, but criticised by others and particularly Conservative MPs. Gareth Southgate, the team's manager, said he was aware of the booing that had taken place at some matches. 
I did hear it. It's not something on behalf of our black players that I, I wanted to hear because it feels as though it's a criticism of them. I think we have got a situation where some people seem to think it's a political stand that they don't agree with. Um, that's not the reason that the players are doing it. We're supporting each other. Well, Gideon Rackman, it's great to have you back on the podcast. Um, you did a superb column this week looking at this idea of Gal Southgate's quite powerful political position as, as right now the most famous man in the country and some people are rallying around. What kind of patriotic message do you think he's trying to put forward? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it's very interesting that he's trying to put forward a patriotic message at all, because, you know, generally football managers try to steer clear of politics and so on. But Southgate has pushed against that, most notably in the weeks before the tournament. He published an essay essentially about patriotism called Dear England. And in it, essentially, he adopts what you might call a progressive sort of centre-left view of patriotism. He put it much more delicately than that, actually, better than that. But he, he, he says that he too has a great pride in queen and country, that his grandfather fought in the Second World War, was a proud military man, and in that sense touches on all the bases of the most traditional forms of patriotism. But then he says that kind of pride in country shouldn't come at the expense of introspection and progress. And strikingly, in a relate to the Black Lives Matter thing, he says that not only he doesn't just defend his players' rights to take positions on social issues, he actually says they have a duty to stand up for things like racial inclusivity and so on. And in that sense, I think clearly, but quite subtly, he's positioned himself to the left of those in the Conservative Party who've been, uh, you know, angry about Black Lives Matter, but angry about generally the sense that uh, this is a kind of, as they might put it, woke England football team, some of whose players, for example, have campaigned on issues like child hunger. So it's a very interesting moment because in theory, you know, an England football triumph would be wonderful for whatever government is in power, particularly for a government which has trying to associate Brexit with the idea of national resurgence. But it's it's complicated by the fact that the team and the team's manager are not really part of that very sort of traditional view of patriotism, but have been embraced instead a kind of more, and quite explicitly embraced, a more sort of progressive sort of centre-left version of, of what patriotism is about. It is very interesting, Robert Shrimsley, because obviously the Conservatives have stoked, for want of a better phrase, these culture wars because they can see electoral advantage in it, that where they are and their views of society and all these different things we've talked about is probably nearer to where the average British voter is. But when you've had this great national moment with everybody getting behind the England team, they have got themselves into a rut. And I think the obvious example of this is Pretty Patel, the Home Secretary, who is someone who is, you know, quite likes to talk about these cultural issues. She's attacked lives matter. She's attacked taking the knee. And yet, obviously, she was then photographed wearing an England shirt celebrating the team on. And of course, a lot of people have pointed out a little bit of hypocrisy here. Yeah, it, it shouldn't actually be that difficult for the Conservatives in the way they conduct um, what we talk about as the culture wars. You know, there's lots of areas where, you know, whether it's tearing down statues or some of the really hardline positions against the police, where it's not actually that difficult for them to take a position and discomfort the opposition. But it shouldn't have taken a rocket scientist to say, 
it's probably best not to go to war with the England team ahead of a major tournament because it, it was inevitable that if the England team did well, and quite possibly even if the England team didn't do well, that the majority of public opinion is going to rally around them. Therefore, they, some conservatives, I mean, there's even that fantastic conservative MP Lee Anderson, who's been saying he's been boycotting the tournament until the, uh, the, the, the taking the knee um, protest at, at ends. And they've got themselves in a fantastic mess about this because, of course, most people even if they don't especially love the taking the knee, can just deal with it and, and move on and support the team. So I think they've put themselves in a terrible spot and it's going to make it a little bit harder for them to capitalise on any victory later on. And we've seen all kinds of briefing coming out of conservative circles of, you know, a knighthood for Gareth Southgate and even a bank holiday if England were to win on Sunday. So I think they're rushing now to get back on the right side of this situation. And Gideon, obviously... You know, English football and English fans are obviously have long been associated with a very special kind of patriotism, you know, and something that obviously has a much coarser edge to it. And I think it's very interesting that Gareth Southgate is trying to lead in a different direction on this. And that probably says something about the kind of diversity of where the England team is at the moment, which again, you know, some people have been making the argument this week that based on Pudi Patel's immigration policy, the England team as it exists would now couldn't be formed. Again, it's a tricky one for Southgate, but one that he's handled very well, which is that the England team, and I speak as somebody you know, who's gone to a lot of England games, both at home and abroad, have always had a kind of far-right fringe that follows them around. And it's been you know, difficult to miss. Oddly, their sort of signature chant was no surrender to the IRA, which makes you sort of wonder why they're still chanting about this 20 years after the Good Friday Agreement. But it's a kind of a loyalist, ultra-patriotic thing. The days when they used to boo black players in the England team, thankfully, are are long gone, although that did exist. But, you know, for example, Tommy Robinson, the far-right activist, was arrested in the England game in in Portugal last year. And I think, you know, it's, it's even striking that people who took to the streets to protest about Brexit and about Black Lives Matter, some of them were were organized under the the name the Football Labs Alliance. So there was this sense that there is a kind of attraction between English and England football and the far right. And what Southgate's done is without explicitly repudiating the fans, you know, which would be difficult because these are the guys in a way cheering the team on, he has distanced himself very, very clearly from that sort of thing by saying that this is a diverse team, that the diversity is a strength by supporting the taking the knee. And gradually, he's kind of pushed that support to the margins. I was at the Denmark game. You know, the the booing really wasn't audible when they took the knee, whereas it was uh, maybe five, six games back. So basically, by constructing uh, a team, which like any England team now, would be diverse. There's so many excellent black players. And by making it win and, and saying what he thinks the team represents he's kind of managed to separate them from that far-right element, which has been part of the England team's makeup, unfortunately, or the support's makeup for a long time. I do think it's always very easy to overplay the importance of football in terms of politics and broader society. But I think if there is a lesson from what's happened with England and, and Gareth Southgate's backing of his team overtaking the knee, it is actually that team unity has a benefit. If you look at some of the teams that have done less well, where there is racial diversity in a lot of them, and where there is a, a tax on them 
in their own society. The fact that the team are standing together and taking one position is beneficial to their own success. And I think if one wants to take a broader message from this, it is that actually you can do a lot more when everyone's pulling in the same direction. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think that that, that that, you know, without being too cheesy about it, does have a broader social message behind it that, you know, people of, of diverse backgrounds can get on and if they work together, they can win together. And I think that, you know, you, you can't extrapolate too much from the football team, but, but that is uh, quite a sort of powerful symbolic message. If you think back to the beginning of the pandemic, politicians were very quick to attack a lot of the best paid footballers. Saying they should be doing more. They should be contributing um, to the cost of their club or, or taking a wage cut, particularly when there was talk of furlough for less well-paid staff at clubs. And I think one thing that has also happened is that actually politicians invited footballers closer into the political debate by attacking them directly in that way. And the consequence of this is that footballers have actually been showing their social commitment and their commitment to um, causes. And as a result of which, it's not always worked well for the Conservative Party. And this brings me to the final point, Gideon, which is that obviously the Conservatives have kept pushing this stuff as well and talking about statues and but there's certain ministers who very much like to get these things and rile up these debates and they obviously find lots of allies in particular newspapers and journalists. But I did wonder if this is perhaps an inflection point on this because you can see the danger of looking pretty silly like Lee Anderson, who is by far one of the most culture-worried Conservative MPs, just now looks frankly ridiculous and now become a joke that Labour have actually started a petition on their site to ban him from watching any matches seen as a good omen and I wonder if this will give them a pause for thought when it's looking at the next kind of cultural debate that goes into the consciousness which will never be just around the corner. I think it'll give them pause for thought but equally I don't think one should extrapolate too far the other way because as Robert pointed out to attack the England football team ahead of a tournament you're on a loser it was a ridiculous thing to do but it's not clear to me that therefore you know, the woke, if I can use that term, will now sweep all before them, because this is quite a specific context. Does the fact that people will support an England team that they, you know, have grown to love uh, taking the knee mean that they will then say, well, we don't care about statues, which is, you know, the other iconic issue in, in this? Not necessarily, I think. Both sides, you know, perhaps need to approach these issues with caution or ideally not stoke these issues up at all. So I think that it's heartwarming for those of us that are football fans and also those of us who sort of want uh, the country to be uh, not ripping itself apart over these issues. But I think you have to be a bit cautious as well. I mean, I remember uh, in 1998 when the French team, a multiracial team, won the World Cup. There was a lot of commentary in France and outside saying, you know, maybe this is the moment that will turn back the far right in France that will reconcile France with its multiracial identity. And yet, you know, four years later, Jean-Marie Le Pen was in the, the second round of the French presidential election and actually the far right continued to prosper. So I think, you know, there is a limit to what football can do. It, it cre- it's wonderful at creating moments of euphoria. And it is interesting that this is a football team that has sort of been willing to take political positions but I think we should be cautious about extrapolating from this particular moment and saying it will be a decisive turning point in attitudes to a whole set of very complex issues. I don't think that, you know, woke or the war on woke is over because of this football team, although this is a, uh, a remarkable moment. 
Indeed, and I think, Robert, that is right, that a lot of people like to try and draw parallels um, between football, football managers, politicians, and how they run the country. And ultimately, they are very different things. And there is obviously cultural significance to this, but practically in the day-to-day mechanics of Westminster, I don't think you can really compare it too much. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, if England were to win on Sunday, people will feel very good and they'll go into the summer feeling a bit better and they'll be happy. But the truth is the things that that enforce their political decisions and the way they think and act are not about how their football team wins. It's about how their lives feel at the moment when they're called upon to vote. And there's far, far bigger issues at play than a football match. So I think we should view it, if you want a political parallel, I think it's a a bit more like a by-election. It's a moment and it can send people off into the summer feeling better or worse. But the long-term political significance of this, I think, is is very, very small. Well, Gideon Robert, thank you very much. I hope you both enjoy the match, and I think we've all got everything crossed that England does triumph. That's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple, Spotify, Google, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And if England do triumph, then you'll be in a good mood like us. Please should leave us a positive review and rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out at the French Open for a chance to win a Grand Slam title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. See the action unfold as legends fight for glory and new rivalries emerge. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th, with match replays on demand so you never miss a moment. From the first serve to the final point, Roland Garros promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.